Mr. Cheney, are you ready to take the oath? I am. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, James Danforth Quayle. I, Michael Richard Pence. I, Spiro Theodore Agnew. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. do solemnly swear. Hello everybody, and welcome to the fifth episode of Running Mates. I'm your host, Lars Emerson, and as always, joined by my co-host, Mike Levito. How's it going, folks? This is the podcast where we talk about vice presidents and who should have been chosen instead. You know the drill, so we'll get right to it. This episode, we're talking about 1984. After unseating Carter in 1980, Ronald Reagan is up for re-election himself, and he's challenged by none other than Carter's vice president, Walter Mondale. Can Mondale pull it off? Absolutely not. <laughs> but let's see who he finds as a vice presidential pick anyway. 1984, what's going on? Set the scene. There was a recession in the early 80s and an assassination attempt against President Ronald Reagan. But he is nonetheless projecting a message of recovery, rebound, and an America that is back in the money. The strong economy has allowed Reagan to push through supply-side policies like large tax cuts. He's slashed domestic entitlements. Wall Street's doing really well. And he's kind of presented himself as this different kind of government manager. You know, he handled the air traffic control strike by just firing everybody. He's also overseen increases in military spending, the invasion of Grenada, strong relations with the UK, and a military buildup to escalate the Cold War. So on the Democratic side, reeling from their big loss in 1980, Democrats believe that Ted Kennedy is the effective frontrunner going into 1984. But he declines to run, once again. He's always declining to run. He always seems to be the shoe-in. He never runs. We've kind of talked about him before. Jimmy Carter's former vice president, Walter Mondale, the good Minnesota man, he emerges as the frontrunner. He's kind of the big name in the Democratic Party at this time. And his main challengers are Colorado Senator Gary Hart, who we talked about last episode a bit, and civil rights activist and Baptist minister Jesse Jackson. Hart went after Mondale for being an old-fashioned Democrat whose failed policies had let the party down. Thanks to the superdelegates and the proportional allocation, and Hart's ill-timed insult against New Jersey, he said the good news for his wife is that she's campaigning in California while he's campaigning in New Jersey. Compounding the problem, when his wife interjected that she got to hold a koala bear, Hart said that I won't tell you what I got to hold, samples from a toxic waste jump. As a New Jerseyan, I'm very offended. <laughs> you should be. It's this, this, Colorado, this Coloradan has this like yeah. thing against New Jersey. I know nothing about that. <laughs> Nonetheless, Mondale was able to best Hart by June, though Hart stayed in, and this remains the last major party primary race that went all the way to the convention. Republican side was not eventful at all. In fact, Reagan is not seriously challenged. He's handily renominated. He's declaring it morning in America. That's his sort of big ad campaign, his big pitch to the American people. He's ready to carry on his conservative crusade to define that shining city on a hill that is the United States. Easy enough. Great. So let's talk about what really happened with the VP picks. With Reagan up in the polls so much, Mondale kind of probably rightly decides that he needs a game-changing pick. His first choice seemed to be Mario Cuomo, who's the governor of New York at this time. He's like a big Ronald Reagan critic. Cuomo, however, recommends his protege, a New York three-term congresswoman, Geraldine Ferraro. Democrats hoped that she would appeal to women, who now made up a majority of voters in the country. And this was actually what they said. They thought she would appeal to ethnic voters, which I suppose just means Italians and like people who are descendants of immigrants at this point. I don't know. <laughs> 
as an Italian, how do you feel about that? <laughs> it, it, well, it's 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 the whole like ethnic white thing. It's basically yeah. like non-English descended people can like kind of like identify their immigrant ancestors like within a few generations. I don't know. It seems kind of silly to me. I don't know why like Polish people would be like more inclined to vote for an Italian than a non-Polish person. I get. Yeah, I, I don't know. know. I have no idea. The big news here, of course, is that she is a woman. She is the first woman to ever be on a major party ticket. And that the hope is that it's going to blow the race wide open. It's going to capture enough attention to maybe give Mondale a chance. At first, this actually kind of worked. She got a lot of favorable media. A lot of people didn't really know who she was because she was a three-term congresswoman. And that went great until it, of course, took a sexist turn. Journalists started asking if she was, quote, tough enough or if the Soviets would have advantage of her because she was a woman. By the end of July, like barely done with the party convention, this was all overshadowed by a scandal regarding her and her husband's finances. Her husband was a real estate operator in New York, and he didn't want to release his tax returns, and there were rumors of organized crime linkages, and there was increasingly anti-Italian <laughs> rhetoric, which Ferraro did not help in, by the way. She said, like, she kind of, like, joked about it a bunch, and she was like, well, I knew what I was getting into, and I married an Italian man. <laughs> this eventually all got resolved after about a month, but Ferraro was never really able to shake it and get out of that hole. Then anti-choice activists kept hounding her for the rest of the campaign. There's also just a lot of weird dynamics here. Mondale and Ferraro would like rarely touch each other at events. They'd never like embrace because they were worried that it'd give the impression that they were dating. Mike Pence approves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But like some people still really liked her. They thought she was an icon and she ended up traveling more than Mondale and more than Bush or Reagan combined. Big campaign asset in that way, at least. So Reagan keeps his incumbent vice president, George H.W. Bush, who ingratiated himself to Reagan through his calm and steady handling of Reagan's attempted assassination. Whereas you had Alexander Haig, the secretary of state, saying he was in charge now. Bush just kind of did what he had to do. He, he briefed the press. He ran cabinet meetings. He just kind of kept the seat warm for Reagan when he came back after two or three weeks being in the hospital. He also started winning over some conservatives who initially thought he was too moderate through his work on deregulation and curbing the illegal drug trade, and even toward Western Europe in an attempt to drum up support for NATO's deployment of missiles in the region. So he was a pretty active part of the administration. No surprise that Reagan kept him then. Yeah. Yeah. So there is one vice presidential debate between Bush and Ferraro. Historians seem to feel that it was a pretty even debate, but the run-up to the debate is actually incredibly problematic and like really soured me on George H.W. Bush. So the second lady of the United States, Barbara Bush, before the debate, publicly referred to Ferraro as that $4 million, I can't say it, but it rhymes with rich. Barbara Bush realized she overstepped and apologized, said she did not mean to imply that Ferraro was, quote, a witch. <laughs> she just meant to call her a bitch instead. Way, yeah, way yeah. better. <laughs> um, sure. Um, but then... Peter Teeley, who was Vice President Bush's press secretary, he, he said of Ferraro just prior to the debate, quote, I'm quoting here, she's too bitchy, she's very arrogant, humility isn't one of her strong points, and I think that comes through. Teeley declined to ever apologize for the remark, saying it had no sexist implications, <laughs> and that the Ferraro's campaign was being hypersensitive in complaining about it. Okay. It's just, like, <laughs> hilarious, because, like, he would get fired, like, right there yeah. if that had happened today. Right. Um, <laughs> it's not hilarious. It's bad. But yeah. You know what yeah. I mean. Nonetheless, during the debate, Farrow actually did quite well. She handled Bush, who came across, like, very condescending in the debate, actually, and, like, very patronizing. He, he like, was mansplaining foreign policy to her. Her views on abortion came up, and she, like 
pinged right back to Bush for flip-flopping on the issue. At the end of the day, people kind of viewed the debate through gender lines, which I think is kind of unique, given how this would turn out, as women generally thought for our one, and men really thought that Bush won. This is like a weird look into where we're going to be in 30 years, right? That's the debate. Election day rolls around. Everyone's very excited, (laughs) except Walter Mondale. He's run this liberal campaign. You know, he was really big on the Equal Rights Amendment. He wanted nuclear freezes, but he failed to appeal to southern white voters or northern blue-collar voters. The Mondale-Ferraro ticket lost in a huge landslide. Reagan got 55% of the female vote, as it would turn out. He won more electoral votes than anyone else ever has. He won 59% of the popular vote overall to Mondale's 41%. Mondale wins just Minnesota and D.C. When asked a month later what he'd want for Christmas, President Reagan responds, Ooh, well, Minnesota (laughs) would have been nice. (laughs) All right. As for what happened to Ferraro afterwards, the House Ethics Committee did find that she violated the Ethics and Government Act by failing to report her husband's finances, but that it was not intentional, and since she was leaving Congress anyway, nothing ever came of it. She then tried to run for the Senate in New York a couple of times. She got second place in the primary each time. The second time was 1998, and she lost the nomination to one congressman, Chuck Schumer, who's Mm -hmm. now, of course, Senate Minority Leader. She was also a delegate to the UN Commission on Human Rights under President Clinton in 1993. And after all that and her Senate runs, Ferraro eventually left active politics, but you know, she stayed active and visible as like a commentator, and she championed a lot of like women's rights groups and medical issues, actually. She became a big Hillary Clinton supporter. Hillary Clinton's like very much like a natural heir to Ferraro. I feel like that's very obvious. Mm. She died in 2011, and both Clintons and Walter Mondale spoke at the service. Weird fun fact I learned, though, the use of like Ms, like MS period in the mm. United States is largely because of Geraldine Ferraro, and it's because like news outlets didn't know how to call her because she didn't take her husband's last name. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. Thanks, yeah. Geraldine. George H.W. Bush, we all know what happened to him. He was re-elected vice president. He did some more big things. He sat in during the Washington summit meetings between Reagan and Gorbachev. He was able to weather the Iran-Contra scandal. He would be elected president of his own right, of course, in 1988, and then he would lose re-election to Bill Clinton in 1992. That didn't stop the Bush legacy from soldiering on as... Jed would become governor of Florida. George W. would, of course, become governor of Texas and then president. And now his grandson, George Prescott Bush, is the land commissioner of Texas. So the most successful one, then. Well, people are saying that he's he's got he's got a political future. He's a Latino Bush. On to the main part. You know the drill. We've got our picks, alternative picks, for Mondale's running mate. Since Reagan is the incumbent, we're going to do to him what we did for Nixon and Carter. And we're going to pick just two. This is, this is a difficult year. It's the years where it's like with 72 is similar. It's like the blowout years. Mm-hmm. It's been very hard to find people. Yes, I agree. Because we're not going to make a difference, but who knows. Mm-hmm. Um, let's start with the Democrats. If you want to go first, Mike. Sure. So I went with Lloyd Benson, senator from Texas. I talked about him two episodes ago. I, I chose him as, I think, also number five for Carter. I chose him because he's from a big state, and he kind of bounced the ticket ideologically. Like, Mondale's very liberal Benson's on the more conservative end of the Democratic Party, but he still, I think, would appeal a lot to those blue-collar voters because he's very much a sort of like, uh, I remember I was watching a documentary about the 88 presidential election, he was Michael Dukakis' running mate, and the narrator called him friend of the worker, right? Like, he, he guided the passage of the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, 
which was like a pension reform bill. He also helped create uh, individual retirement accounts, IRAs, which I think we're all familiar with nowadays. And, you know, did a lot of stuff for like healthcare for like low income people. But he was also very friendly with like gas and oil companies and like passed a lot of tax incentives for them. So he's like John Hoynes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he and so he's got this sort of like, I would say almost populist economic profile, but he, he defeated Ralph Yarborough, who's considered like a liberal stalwart in the Democratic primary. So hmm. he's sort of appealing, I think, if you're trying to like get back blue collar voters, I think is a good way to go. And he's also going to, I think, balance out Mondale. At, at the very least, reputation goes politically. He's a very like experienced pick, right? Yeah. I, do, do you think Mondale needs more experience? I don't think so, no, because he's pretty experienced himself. He was senator and then vice president. I, I just think that he needs to try and win back some Reagan Democrats. And I feel like Benson represents kind of like, he, he feels like a new dealer. I feel like Mondo just needs to balance. He needs to appear like not super liberal and Benson's the way to go with that. Even though like by some modern standards, he'd be considered pretty liberal just because of his like economic views. But yeah, I guess I'm just saying, I just think he, if people are too scared and think Mondo's too liberal, he just seems like he strikes a balance. I've used that word like five times already, but yeah. How'd that go for Dukakis? <laughs> I mean, it didn't work, but he won more states than Mondo. That's that's fair. Yeah, I'm, I, the, it, it reads... Like, I'm not sure... If Mondale's looking for a game change, I'm not sure this reads as a game change. It kind of reads to me as, like, not one, but two old guys. But, like, but does Mondale need a game change? Like, he thinks he needs a game change, but does he actually? Or does, like, swinging for the fences like that actually end up hurting him? Is my point. That's a good question. I like, and that's the theme for most of my picks is that they're like relatively like safer. Mm. If it seemed like there were two northern liberals running against these sort of like friendly conservatives, and that you know everything was going well in, in Reagan's America, and then these people were going to like change things too much, like maybe you need someone who doesn't give off that much of an impression. That's true. Okay, I buy that. I buy that argument. I mean, your number five guy is, like, not exactly a game changer. No, 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 he's not. My, my number five is, is Fritz Hollings, the senator from South Carolina, former governor of South Carolina. He's also a World War II veteran. He, he was, like, a big education governor, and, he, and he's moderate to sometimes conservative, but he's got, but he's got sharp philosophical distance from uh, his Senate colleague, Strom Thurmond, one would hope. <laughs> He's a strong human services advocate. He, he was very passionate about like hunger in particular, and he briefly ran in this election's primary. Basically, what he would do in the Senate is he'd do these like hunger tours, and then he'd go back to the Committee on Hunger, which is a thing at the time, and he'd like describe these horrific scenes of like suffering in South Carolina. What I also kind of like about him is he's a budget hawk, and I think you can point out that Reagan has slashed taxes. But he's like increasing spending. The budget's about to balloon under Reagan, mm-hmm. right? It, it goes out of control despite what he's saying. Mm-hmm. And I think Hollings has credibility to be like, you are blowing the budget out of control. And I also think he lets Mondale kind of mend the bridge between the South that the Democratic Party has almost all but lost at mm-hmm. this point. Yeah, I don't disagree. I, I think there's a lot of like good stuff, like a lot, a lot of meat to his sort of like ideology and all of that. And this has become somewhat of a theme on this podcast, but it's, like, I'm looking at, like, his stuff in, like, the early 60s, and, like, it almost seems too conservative for this sort of, like, more modern Democratic Party to accept. 
He he gave a speech, like his last address to the state general assembly. Like he talked about, it was in 1963, and and the first black student had just been admitted to Clemson University, and he basically implied that he's like, hey, look, none of us are happy that this is happening, but we're we're a nation of laws, so we have to let it happen, and we have to let it happen orderly. And also, he was the guy who the reason the Confederate battle flag was flying over the South Carolina State House until 2015 was. It happened under his watch. Mm. Well, what I actually think is, like, kind of funny about that is that, like, they did it in, like, 1962 to commemorate the, like, 100 years since the Civil War. And then they just never passed a resolution to, like, take it down. Like, they just never said when they were going to take it down, so it just stayed there. It seems like the sort of thing you put a sunset clause on. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, so, I don't know. It's And who I have for number four, like, is maybe even, like, a little more conservative in his earlier days, but, like, makes me a little... It, that's fair. I, I do think he he very much evolves. He actually becomes I mean, after these like hunger tours, he becomes way more like mm-hmm. racially sensitive. He learns. Yeah. He goes. He learns. Mm-hmm. But I also think Mondale is not. I, I think <laughs> you can't be too woke. <laughs> but like Mondale might be too. Like the country sees him as too woke. Right. Right. Um, and it's like clearly the, the Democratic Party is like down to like just Minnesota at this point. Mm-hmm. Maybe you get someone from the South who doesn't speak the same way you do. I'm not saying sure. it's good. Yeah, yeah. Maybe everyone should be like Minnesota, but you have to acknowledge that not everyone is there yet. But yeah, so I, I don't disagree with that, but I also think that's a strategy the Democrats had kind of abandoned like as early as 1968. And they've been losing elections ever since. I, not even 1968, 64, really. I mean, like. Johnson, like, I know Johnson, like, he's, like, a good old boy from Texas, but he was, like, very progressive as far as, like, racial issues and poverty goes. And Humphrey was, too, obviously. But Democrats have only won, and they'll only win two elections until 92 using the strategy. I guess so. I don't don't know. I don't know. You also have a former governor of South Carolina. I do. John C. West, uh, governor of South Carolina. So he was actually, yes, he was a former segregationist, but he did come around on the issue uh, in, in his time in the state government. But you know he had he has he has kind of like some conservative bona fides like he investigated the Communist Party of the United States when he was a state senator in South Carolina. He's also big on like government transparency. He helped revive South Carolina economically, and he was under Carter and actually Reagan for a bit. He was the ambassador to Saudi Arabia. And yeah, I, I picked him because uh, you know this is the height of the Cold War. Foreign policy experience helped Vermont a little bit. He has kind of anti-communist you know bona fides he he was very supportive of saudi arabia which is you know got a lot of support from the united states because it was anti-communist and so i think that helps kind of like the hawks who are maybe afraid of the soviets and who think that maybe mondale would be too monday who's that who's calling for nuclear freezes we too soft on them and you know he also is is from the south so yeah i i, I think why i have fritz hollings and not john west John West has been out of politics for kind of a while at this point. He was ambassador to Saudi Arabia. Until 1981. Yeah. It's now been like four years, almost four years. He was last governor in 75. It's it's sort of like it's sort of like if Tom Vilsack ran for president in 2020. Or if like John Huntsman ran for president in 2024. It's like you were you were like ten years ago, dude. I mean Joe Biden. But he was vice president. <laughs> I guess so. I don't know. Um, well, like Mitt Romney, I think was like he. Was he like was at eight least years a, after he was governor. He was at he least a governor him. in the in the administration that preceded this. This guy hasn't been governor for the last two presidents. You know. That's that's true. That's why I like Hollings over West. Okay. I also think Hollings is more attractive. <laughs>
You love a look. I do. But I also think, like, government transparency, I don't know. I think there, there's some appeal there where it's, like, the Iran-Contra scandal is about to happen. The foreign policy thing is legit. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. Hollings doesn't really have that. And, you know, I think there's, like, a compelling case to be made that it's, like, well, what, what are the Republicans hiding? Sort of thing. I don't know. Jelly beans. <laughs> yeah. Cool. My number four, I have definitely a foreign policy pick. I have Cyrus Vance, who is the former Secretary of State under Carter, and former Deputy Secretary of Defense under Johnson, and former Secretary of the Army under Kennedy. He's a big secretary. My, my case here, these two decades of service span the Vietnam War, which he advised against, and then he resigned in protest during the Carter presidency because of the Iran hostage crisis, after he suggested a diplomatic solution, but he was kept out of the room when there was a military operation to rescue the hostages, which of course did not go well. These are kind of the two most significant foreign policy failures of the last two decades, right? Mm -hmm. And even though he was around, he's kind of the only one who's always like, no, every time. He would go after members of his own party that probably aren't. Like, he can say, I left the Carter presidency. This is wrong, but mm -hmm. I like Mondale. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think his military experience and his, like, honesty and, like, trying, in, like, knowing what's right and not wanting to put Americans at risk, I think that helps Mondale so that people don't think Mondale is just like a Jimmy Carter stooge, you know? Mm -hmm. That's fair. I think that, well, so my thing with him, it's kind of like the concern I would have if like Hillary Clinton were to pick like Julian Castro or Tom Vilsack as her running mate in 2016, where it's like, I don't really like doubling up at administration picks. Mm. I, I think you need to balance it out with an outsider because it's like, mm. if Car Carter is defeated like pretty soundly in 1980, mm. and if you're trying to sell people on his vice president being different, I don't know if it makes sense to sort of, like, go with a Carter administration retread. But who resigned in protest? That's a pretty yeah, baller move. I guess so, but I, I don't know. It, it's I both a like rebuke that. of Carter, but it, like, it's kind of a rebuke of Carter. It is. Well, you still have Mondale on the ticket. Yeah. Which also might be a reason why Mondale wouldn't do it. But, like, you could, you, like, Carter could give a wink and be like, it's okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. No, I, I get what you mean. That's my primary concern. I like, yeah, foreign policy-wise, I think it's very helpful. But it's also a thing where it's, like, I, I know the the whole thing is that, like, he's, like, you know, he opposed Operation Eagle Claw, and and he, you know, thought thought the they, they bungled the hostage situation. But it's, like, do you want to remind people that that happened <laughs> <laughs> in the first place? You Th know. That's true. I think the advantage is, like, Vietnam was long enough ago that even though he was around and involved in it, he can bring it up as a thing, but people aren't like, oh, you're a Vietnam-era guy, you're bad. Yeah. The Iran hostage crisis is obviously more recent. But it's like, I'm trying to think of, like, a good comparison where it's like, would you want to, like, nominate... I See, I can't think of anyone who, like, resigned because of their conscience recently. I guess, like, James Mattis is the closest thing I could think of, where he basically resigned because he didn't think Trump was supporting NATO enough. And I do think people like James Mattis, but... So maybe, maybe, maybe I'm talking myself into this a little bit, but... I don't know. It's just it's just hard for me to think of like someone coming from like a maligned and clearly unpopular administration, and then I don't know. All right, that's my number four. Okay, number three. So I know I was talking about it's like, does Mondale really need to, to to go for a game change? Well, I went for a game change with my number three pick. I picked Shirley Chisholm, Congresswoman from New York, the first Black woman elected to Congress. Shirley Chisholm, a really interesting career. Uh, she 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 actually has a, a decent history of like working across the aisle. She worked with Bob Dole on the food stamp program. She was active in a lot of legislation regarding childcare and, and and legislation targeting poor families. She actually had a decent relationship with, of all people, George Wallace after he was shot. So she was also she also ran for president in '72. And after Wallace was shot, she actually visited him in the hospital. And he like because of their conversations. 
he was able to kind of like exercise his influence to help get Southern congressmen vote for some of her initiatives uh, regarding like domestic workers getting the right to minimum wage. Hmm. So she has kind of the same outside appeal of Ferraro, but I think she has like a bit more of a record. Even though I, we're probably at a point in history where most African Americans are voting Democrat, I still think you can view sort of like, you know, African Americans and really just kind of like, I think the urban poor, regardless of race, as a little bit of an untapped market. If you think that Reagan is appealing to the suburbs of America, and he's appealing to Wall Street, and he's appealing to rural America. It's like, why not go in the opposite direction? Granted, Democrats are probably winning those cities already. They might not need a lot, but show, I think, the everyday person that they'll have an advocate in the administration. That, you know, on one side you have sort of like a son of like a millionaire and a senator, and you have a Hollywood actor. Like, show them like a everyday person on the ticket. Hmm. You know, again, it would be a huge game change. And it'd be the first black person on a ticket and certainly the first woman on a ticket still. So, Yeah, I mean, I really like Shirley Chisholm. Definitely a game-changing pick. Mm. I like that you brought Ferraro back into it. It's like like she's definitely more experienced than Ferraro. That's Mm -hmm. the thing. I mean, it it must just be like fear of racism. Well, you wouldn't pick because they're ostensibly the same person. Well, also both New York congresswomen. I did bury this a little bit. I believe also at this time her husband sort of fell ill. That, and she was tending to him, and, and didn't, that's kind of why she didn't run for re-election. That's what I was about to say. She's resigned. She's retired yeah, at this yeah, point. Yeah, um, is what I was building to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like if you can pull her out of retirement, maybe it works. But I kind of think she's kind of done at this point. Yeah. And I, I also just don't see, just because of the time, and I'm, obviously that's not right, but just because of the time, I don't see her name coming across Mondale's. Oh no, probably desk. not. Probably not at all. Though he considered some like. Very odd choices. We'll talk about those later. Yeah, definitely a game-changing pick, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say so. But would it work? We'll never know. I don't know. Okay, for my number three, I went with James Blanchard. He is the fresh new governor of Michigan. He was a representative from Michigan, and he hasn't actually been governor very long. It's been, like, two years at this point. So he's definitely a dark horse candidate, but he's potentially, like, a very good dark horse candidate. While he was in the House before he was governor, he saved Chrysler from bankruptcy. Then he became governor of Michigan, and he took on what was called, at the time, the toughest governor's job in America. Michigan was in, like, terrible state. It had a huge deficit. The state was approaching bankruptcy. It had 17% unemployment. And he came to office, and he just, like, very swiftly and, like, decisively worked with, like, everyone across the state to boost the state's credit rating back to AA. He established a rainy day fund of more than $400 million. He created a ton of jobs. He basically, like, saved the state of Michigan in a span of only a couple years. And he's going to be reelected in 1986 by the largest margin of any governor in Michigan's history. Would he really abandon Michigan two years into his governorship to be vice president? I don't know. But this insane turnaround at a local level, like, this guy has the potential to be, like, a huge star, and he kind of, like, fades without... um, He eventually loses re-election. But it's like, you, you can kind of point to, like... Ronald Reagan's policies aren't working. It's morning in America? No, it's not. Mm -hmm. You're letting us all down. We had to, like, bring this guy in, and he did a bang-up job, and he's a Democrat, and he's awesome, and he did it by, like, bringing everyone together and, like, tackling on the hard budget questions, and it worked. Mm -hmm. And he, like, saved his state. What have you saved, Ronald Reagan? (laughs) Not Michigan. Definitely a dark horse. Pulling him straight out of Michigan. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think think this this is an interesting pick. You know, I do wonder if you would have as much credibility only two years into his term as he would by the end of his career. Um, but he's got years in Congress before that. It's like Geraldine Farrow has fewer years in the House 
and she wasn't a governor. That is true. But yeah, no, I, I, I do. I don't really have much to say about this because I do think it's a pretty good pick. It is a good, like, yeah, it's the sort of, like, I had to clean up Reagan's mess. Right. It's kind of, he's almost like the Spiro Agnew of his time. Yeah, yeah. Um, except so he seems like, like he actually did yeah, something, yeah. whereas Spiro Agnew didn't seem like he did it all the time. Yeah, Spiro Agnew was all, like, anticipation. It's like, mm-hmm. what, what could he be? Whereas this yeah. guy was like, look at what he was already doing in this short time frame. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's my guy. I really like this guy. End of story. Good pick. So number two, I went with Ruben Askew, the former governor of Florida, and briefly Carter's uh, U.S. trade representative. He was a, you know, from the South, but he was a pretty liberal governor. He was a big supporter of school desegregation, which passed for liberal at the time. And he was considered one of the best governors in Florida history. He was a big proponent also of transparency in government. I believe he passed government sunshine laws in Florida, which I think counters like, you know, the Republicans are the party of Watergate, and also Reagan got some scandals, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm honest. What are these guys hiding kind of thing that uh, John C. West also had? And I think, you know, he's one of these sort of, like, line of, like, in the late 70s, early 80s, like, one of these pretty, like, liberal governors. I think of him. I uh, think of, I guess, Terry Sanford's a little before that. But, like, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, and the aforementioned John C. West— they had all done well in the South. Like there was something that the South found appealing about these guys who were pretty liberal. And I, I think I think you know if you're trying to win back the South, I think just look. He, he's like I've said this about a couple of people in the past. Where it's like, but he's like cracked some kind of code, right? Mm. He's figured out how to make sort of like liberal governance work in the South. And so I think putting that on your ticket helps. And he also has some foreign policy experience. He was the U.S. trade representative. He did represent the United States to foreign governments, and he's got back on for him too. He's not that liberal though. He's actually pretty conservative on a couple things, right? He's, like, very anti-abortion. And he's anti-nuclear freeze. Is he compatible enough with Mondale is kind of my thing with him. I mean, I'm going to go out of limb and say Fritz Hollings was also probably anti-nuclear freeze and abortion. But he wasn't talking about it. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. It is. I feel like there's, like, the core problem is, like, do you want someone who was like the nominee so that it actually, like, works and makes sense? Or do you want someone who is, like, different enough than the nominee to bring in a different group of people and also balance out the ticket? And Ruben Escu, you pick him because he would appeal to the South and would probably bring people and, and is different from Mondale. And, like, that's the, the needle you're trying to thread. It's a very kind of, like, old-fashioned way of thinking about the ticket when, you know, back in, like, the, like, 20s when they were like, well... We need to, like, a, you know, a, a pe- appease both the mugwumps and the stalwarts. So we have to pick one of each, and that's how, like, Chester A. Arthur ends up becoming vice president. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think that's all I have to say about that. He just seems like a, I guess, capital punishment. He was pretty, he, he was pretty pro-death penalty, too. Yeah. I, I like his look. I, I, I like, <laughs> and I do think... Mondale Askew is like a good. <laughs> I see. I, I I think I think his, his biggest detriment is his name because if something to skew, that's not good. So yeah, you remember, like I imagine like I the know. NY Post like headlines. It's like Mondale Askew. If like they have a picture of, like Mondale <laughs> tripping, like it's not gonna it's not gonna be good. Right, you can you can just go by Ruben Mondale Ruben. It's a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Walter Ruben. That sounds like a guy's name. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have a lot about him other than. Maybe ideological incompatibility, but yeah, yeah, it's kind of what I, you said about West. And I said about Hollings is like maybe Mondale. It's in his interest to look at where the rest of his party is mm-hmm. and then where the rest of the country is at the time. Another interesting fact about this guy is completely unrelated. So his full name is Ruben O'Donovan Askew, and he didn't write his name as Ruben O Askew. He wrote it as Ruben O apostrophe D period Askew. So I don't know if that's an asset or not, but <laughs> it's, it's just a it's weird interesting. You think about, like, this is a complete tangent. You think about, like, the weird names we've had be president. Like, Harry S. Tr- Harry's middle name was literally S. There was no dot, yes. 
I like, get very angry at my high school textbook because they always put a period by the S. It doesn't stand for anything. You're thinking like the weird names that like, when we were doing research, I think for this episode, the one before, and there was a senator from Arkansas named Dale Bumpers. <laughs> just like, the United States government's just like an incredible font of just like ridiculous names. I love Dale Bumpers. He's it's so cool. It's the greatest name. Um, or Kit Bond. Love Kit that guy. Bond. That's yeah. dope. Cool. On to another dope guy. <laughs> My number two pick is Gary Hart, the senator from Colorado who ran in the primary. The idea here is maybe Mondale should try to put the country and the party back together. Hart was like a very serious contender to actually be VP for that reason. He said he would do it if he was asked. And like clearly he represents the future of the party. Mm -hmm. A Democratic party that's kind of more progressive but also more Western. And maybe not a foreign policy disaster like the administrations Mondale is associated with, right? And I think getting a Westerner would be a good move for the Democratic Party looking forward since they're clearly starting to lose the South. It's like maybe we need to start looking at places other than Minnesota and the Northeast where we appeal, right? Mm -hmm. He's also like already the clear frontrunner for the next election. Why not give him like a boost up? And New Jersey is going to go for Reagan anyway. You can't lose them anymore, you know? Yeah, yeah. I picked him episodes ago for harder. At the time, it would make sense. Obviously, knowing what we know about Gary Hart now would not make sense. I think that he does come off, and I'm seeing this, I'm probably stealing this from his Wikipedia page, there's something about him that reads like a little flaky to me. And he just feels like a little daffy. There's like the whole combat in New Jersey. And then like there's the whole thing. I, I described this as like an asset in the 76 episode. There's the whole thing when he tried to join the Naval Reserve yeah. during the Iran hostage crisis. Yeah. Even though he was too old. But they let him in anyway. But he never actually did anything. He went to like 10 days of exercises and that was it. And people like just trying to make yourself look like a soldier. You're not actually a soldier. There's something about him that just feels very, like, flaky, but I guess Biden had that reputation for a little bit, too. So, I don't know. Ideologically, I think it makes sense. I, I agree with you about being, like, the future of the party. Mm-hmm. And geographically, it's like, why, why not try to break new ground? Like, right. you know, it's, you don't really have anything to lose that with that. It's one of those things where it's like, you do wonder if stuff comes up during the actual campaign, and it turns out that people find out about his extra malware show earlier this time. But, uh... Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he comes across a little cocky, mm-hmm. for sure. I'll give you that. All right, on to your number one, Mike. I picked John Glenn. How do you beat a celebrity who people think of as a cowboy who's basically kind of pretending and acting as this American hero and an image of the country itself? Well, you pick a literal astronaut who's actually done some stuff. An actual, I believe he was a veteran too, right? He's a Marine. Yes. Um, he's another celebrity. He's coming to have a 40-point victory in the Ohio Senate election from a Midwestern state, you know, which assumes that he's winning back the kind of Reagan Democrats that Mondale would need to convert back to the party. He has foreign policy experience. He was opposed to the SALT II Treaty, which gives him some credibility with the Hawks. The right stuff had just come out, which people think actually may have hurt his presidential campaign. But people are talking about him. He's in the news. Why not? You need a big swing if you're going to be president as popular as Reagan. So just just go for name recognition. Go for a guy who's like actually legit and, and go for John Glenn. John Glenn's also my number one. <laughs> We're big John Glenn stands at this podcast. So I, I agree with all of that. We, we talked about this, you know, in the 76 episode. The Democratic Party would be well served to put John Glenn front and center in the 80s especially. It's like people think of them as like unpatriotic losers It's like, Reagan is clearly great and amazing and a hero. It's like, well, John Glenn's still choosing to be a Democrat. Mm -hmm. And, like, it's it's just, like, a thing. It's like, people should be proud to be a Democrat Mm -hmm. because John Glenn is a Democrat. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's a message I think Democrats 
were afraid and have been afraid for a long time to put forward, you know? Mm-hmm. So you, you were talking about how the right stuff, he thought it wasn't good for him. Mm-hmm. He like wrote in his auto- autobiography about it, is that it emphasized that the only thing he was famous for happened like 20 years ago. <laughs> and it kind of drew attention to the fact that he hadn't really done anything in the Senate, which I think mm-hmm. is fair. Yeah. But, you know, we both picked him as like our first choice in 76 when he literally hadn't done anything. He'd mm-hmm. just been elected, basically. I mean, he's at least voted now. <laughs> True. So I, I think that's fair but like it doesn't really matter if you have like a former vice president as the running mate yeah yeah i like john glenn me too he's great he's awesome big astronaut fans here <laughs> astronauts should hold every elected they office should. mark kelly 2020 <laughs> all right that's armandale picks armandale considered some weird choices so we already talked about mario cuomo and gary hart here are some names for you he had kind of this parade of people we brought in as, as potential picks. San Francisco Mayor Diane Feinstein, who's now Senator Diane Feinstein, was in the parade. Kentucky Governor Martha Lane Collins, brand new governor. Los Angeles Mayor Tom Bradley, San Antonio Mayor Henry Cisneros. He really likes these mayors, I guess. Mm. It's interesting. As, as for kind of our Mondale picks across the board, we have a lot of senators and a lot of governors. But we also, I don't know, we, we have some, like, cabinet-level people. It's, it's kind of a very diverse... I don't think we think that experience is the problem. No. There's nothing, like, Mondale really, like, needs. If anything, most of our picks are geographic. Yeah, and demographic, in yeah. a way. Yeah. He just, he just needs a miracle, really. Yeah. <laughs> we should have gotten him a priest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Pope. Yeah. Mondale the Pope. <laughs> Mondale the Pope. 1984. <laughs> Vice President Pope. <laughs> um, cool. All right, let's let's quickly talk about if we want to kick H.W. Bush off the ticket and mm-hmm. see what happens. I'll, I'll go first, I guess. Mm-hmm. My number two for Reagan in 84 is Dick Thornburg. Great name. Um, he's governor of Pennsylvania. He's a former U.S. attorney. He had a very measured and laudable response to the Three Mile Island catastrophe. He was described as one of the few authentic heroes of that episode as a calm voice against panic. He did good things for employment, business, and education. Maybe use this to say, look, even states are doing well under Reagan's new economic agenda. There's so much business, so many jobs. Reagan no longer needs that insider that he maybe doesn't even like anyway, George H.W. Bush. Plus, Dick here (laughs) becomes attorney general for Reagan in the late 80s, so you have to assume Reagan actually likes him. Yeah. And I think it did, like, Three Mile Island was a disaster that happened under the Carter administration. And so, like, it, it brings that back up. Mm. Where he, he's like, a, he worked with Carter while it was happening, but he's like, you know, I've seen firsthand the kind of, you know, I don't think Carter had anything to do with Three Mile Island, really. But, like, you can be like, I saw firsthand when this happens, right? It'd almost be like nominating Chris Christie in 2012 after Hurricane Sandy. Where he could be mm. like, I, yeah, I have pictures of me shaking hands with Obama, but our state was pretty messed up. Or it'd almost be like running Andrew Cuomo now, where he's like, federal government didn't do anything to help me. I had to do it all myself. Yeah. Again, it's like, you don't really need to to swap out Bush for any reason, but if you're going to, why not? Why not pick this guy? He seems like he's he's got a good (laughs) He seems fine. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Sorry, I don't really have much to say about it. No, no, I, I, I I was picking it anything but like i know it's like it it makes sense he would have been into his second term by now uh he actually did we worked in the ford administration a little bit he was a u.s attorney so he's got he's got a pedigree 
Yeah. If, if we're going off, I'm going off the assumption that Reagan just hates H.W. Bush. He hates that he, he got stuck with this, like, weirdo bureaucrat. He's like, God damn it. I hate this guy. I don't care what happens. I need a new one. He grabs Dick out of Pennsylvania. It's got to be a better way to put it. Yeah, I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's go to your number two. All right, uh, so I went with a bizarre pick, but one that I found interesting. Uh, Gene Kirkpatrick, Reagan's ambassador to the United Nations. Gene Kirkpatrick is kind of the prototypical Democrat turned Reaganite. She's actually a socialist when she was young. Like, she came from, like, a family of socialists. And as a student, she was active initially with, like, socialist organizations. She was from, like, the Columbia, Missouri area. And she was like, yeah, it was kind of hard to find a socialist organization in the middle of Missouri. Uh, She's also, like, a member of the Democratic Party. Like, she actively campaigned for Humphrey. But she quickly became disillusioned by McGovern Carter and grew closer to Scoop Jackson, who was the senator from Washington, who was a Democrat but was very much so a hawk. And she adopted those hawkish, like, very anti-communist views and kind of expanded on them. When she... Even when she was recruited to be ambassador to the United Nations, she was an academic before that. She was even like, look, like, I am an AFL-CIO Democrat. I don't know how this is going to play, but she ended up becoming a valued member of the administration. As ambassador, she was a vociferous supporter of U.S. policies that support authoritarian regimes in the face of left-wing resistance. She even went as far as to support Argentina's invasion of the Falklands, which, if you remember, was a war they fought against the United Kingdom. And she's like, no, I think I think they got a point here. And which did not win her a lot of friends in, like, the British embassy. Like, I think, like, the British embassy like, actually called her stupid. <laughs> so I went with her. So Reagan's second term would be, like, a big one for foreign policy. And he was looking to sort of, like, tighten up the ship after a few scandals and assassination attempts. Like, Kirkpatrick's, like, a true believer. She, she gives a speech at the 84 convention. It's called, like, the Blame America First speech. Mm. And she's just kind of like, well, you know... All these bad things happen, you know. They don't blame the they don't blame the communists. They blame they blame America. They all blame America first. Oh, it's America to blame for this. America to blame for that. We're not. Uh, it's actually the communists' fault. And so, you know, if if he's looking for someone who's gonna like be a loyalist, basically, especially when you get things like Iran Contra, and you know, you might be worried that there's maybe some leaks in the ship. And also, if, if you have experience with someone like Alexander Haig, who ended up being kind of like a little power hungry himself, you go with someone who, who's like a true believer. And you know, maybe it helps convert those other Democrats who have not become Reaganites yet, if they see a former Democrat as his vice president. I go back and forth. Like, every sentence convinces me and then unconvinces me. <laughs> she was very... It would be very controversial. She's, like, kind of crazy. Yeah. She's, like, a little terrifying. <laughs> but she's also, like, a game-changer of her own. Reagan's like, ooh, Mondeo has a woman. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so like, yeah, yeah, now yeah. I'm gonna put a woman, but, like, someone who's, like even crazier than me <laughs> she tried to like it was, it was el salvador or was it nicaragua where there was those nuns who were murdered by like u.s backed death squads and she tried to blame the nuns for it <laughs> she was like they're actually political activists when i don't think there's like a lot of like uh evidence that suggested that they were she she was she was problematic to say the least yeah there's something about salvador, her that yeah. makes her very like a trump pick like a Trump cabinet official or like national security advisor thing is like I want someone who's like very with me and like a little bit crazier yeah like she's like not as bad as Stephen Miller but like kind of the Stephen Miller right right she's still a democrat in 84 yeah (laughs) but she speaks the convention and like maybe she like is like and I'm changing and becoming vice president (laughs) now she would change her registration in 85 to yeah, Republican yeah. was for the rest of her life. And she was clearly like a Democrat in name only kind of at that point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's she's like a true believer, that mm-hmm. one. Yeah. Number one pick, I have someone we talked about a lot last episode, Jack Kemp, representative from New York. Elevating Kemp, I think 
just makes sense at this point. You know, he's now chair of the House Republican Conference. He's clearly like a Reagan brand Republican, just younger. He's also been a key House legislator behind some of Reagan's key laws, like the big tax cut of 1981. And, and he's like starting to like push the like establishment Republicans at this point. Mm. It's like maybe if Reagan and Republicans are looking ahead to 1988, which is not crazy if this election kind of seems like boring, mm. and you think that HW is not a logical successor. It's like Kemp very much is. It's like this is just a younger version of me who has been with me. He can lead the party forward. We talked about how he's a very like Paul Ryan pick. And yeah, he's just more affable and conservative and charismatic than Bush. Yeah, no, I so I also picked Jack Kemp. So I agree with a lot of that. And yeah, it is a thing where it's I, Jack Kemp is the future of the Republican Party. Bush is very much the past of the Republican yeah. Party. And if you're looking for the future and you, you're not satisfied with Bush's job, yeah, I think Kemp is the way to go. No. Especially, you contrast him. He's younger than Ronald Reagan. So it's like a 30-year age difference. All I say is that, you know, it, it, it's it's a, a decent-sized age difference. Yeah, again, he he's a more logical successor to Reagan than Bush is. I, like, ideologically. For sure. Like, the way he played on real life, it made sense because Bush was his vice president. But I, if you view Bush as kind of like, even though he was more conservative than, say, Nelson Rockefeller, but as, like, the last gasp of, like, the Eastern establishment, even mm. though he's from Texas. Yeah, I, I think it, it lets the conservatives consolidate power across the Republican Party. Right. It's very forward-focused. Yeah. Cool. Reagan considered no one. He kept Bush on the ticket. Things seem to be fine there. Um, all right, the speed round. Any Any fun names you got? Mike? So yes, actually. So this is a really crazy one. So we talked about George Wallace and Shirley Chisholm earlier. Fun fact about George Wallace that I did not know until we started doing this podcast. We all know George Wallace, famous segregationist, ran as a segregationist a lot for president. In 1982, he declared himself like a born-again Christian, and he begged for forgiveness from the African-American community for his past actions. And he would actually be elected to governor of Alabama for a fourth and final term to serve from 1983 to 1987. And he actually like was kind of good on his word. Like He made a record number of African-American state appointments in, like, the Alabama state government. Yeah, like, logic says you can't nominate Wallace because of his past. <laughs> like, I know I've been, like, a big stickler for the segregationists. But, like, he's a born-again Christian during the rise of the religious right who's still a Democrat, and he's a segregationist to moderate redemption story. There's, like, something there. <laughs> like, there's something really, really weird and unlikely there. But, like, it's... It's interesting. You think Mondale and Ferraro have that, like, no-touch rule? Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think Mondale and Wallace definitely have a no-touch rule. Yeah. Some names that I, like, grappled with. I had Bruce Babbitt, the Arizona governor. Bob Graham, Florida governor. I also had Joe Biden, who's, like, making waves. A new senator from Delaware. But, like, people are starting to hear about him. People are starting to think, hey, this guy could be a thing. I also put down Bill Clinton. Just because he's now been, he's now governor the second time at this point. Mm. He's he's definitely a dark horse as well, but it kind of plays that whole the South. Mm. It's like these guys have figured something out. I don't know. Do anyone for the Republicans? Nah, <laughs> not me either. Okay, so in conclusion, if you could change the running mate for either of them, would you? Well, I wouldn't for Reagan. I don't think there's really a reason to. Yeah, I agree. Um, and it would just it would weaken him probably because people are like, why is he? Why? Why? What's wrong? What's happening? <laughs> What's wrong? Uh, <laughs> I I do think Kemp could get reelected in '92 though. I, I think you could have like a 16-year Republican reign if it was Reagan Kemp. Why? I I think Kemp uh, says no new taxes and actually agrees with. Oh, that's <laughs> a good point. That's a good point. He would, but like I don't know. But like, would that end up actually just like? 
hurting the economy. Who knows? Yes, but that's like that's Reagan and Trump's whole shtick. I guess so. Anyway, I think I would pick differently for Mondale, preferably John Glenn, but I think that the Ferraro pick it feels grasping at like a thing that feels unlikely to happen. I agree. I, I think Ferraro's nomination and like the more research I did on her and like all the stuff around the debate and the horrible things that like the Reagan campaign said about her like made me more sympathetic she's clearly like a very important figure Mm. in like the women's movement in America right Mm. and like when Hillary Clinton won the nomination in 2016 there was like a lot of talk about like the path from Ferraro Mm. to this and and now President Hillary Clinton is leading us very well (laughs) through this coronavirus crisis I but yeah I would I would put John Glenn on the ticket for sure mm. I, I, th- I think there's something to be said though if Mondale kind of knew he was going to lose then maybe he gets a win by nominating a woman for vice president maybe I, in history I think he does yeah. like in context historically he gets to break some ground he gets to chip away at the glass ceiling and or I guess she does because it's weird for a guy to say he helps he helps he helps yeah. he hands her a hammer and you know maybe, maybe that's enough if, if you can't if you can't win the election you can at least try and push the country in a more progressive direction. He seems like a happy warrior. I've, have you ever watched his concession speech? No. He does not seem, like, depressed at all. He, he, he's, he's like, man, we made history. He's like, because he, you know, he was in Minnesota election. He's like, we made history here. Like, we're the only Katanaga for real. Like, we made history. Yeah. The last, like, three episodes has, like, really turned... I've learned a lot about Walter Mondale. Mm. He actually seems like kind of a great guy. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, that's our show. You can, as always, find us everywhere the podcasts are found. Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. You can find all of our works on thepostwriter.com, including our Running Mates portal for all the vice presidency-related content. Happy presumptive nominee Joe Biden. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna see who he picks as vice president. We've got a lot up about his strongest VP picks. Biden, of course, a former VP himself, mm. and we'll be talking about him in an episode eventually. Yeah. We will catch you in our next episode on the 1988 election between now a presidential nominee himself, George H.W. Bush, and his choice of Dan Quayle, and Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis, and his choice of Lloyd Benson. In my opinion, I kind of think this will be the most boring episode is 1988. We get to pick a full slate, though. I guess. My, my knowledge of 1988 Democrats and Republicans is very limited. Jack Kemp. We'll put him on the table. Yeah. Perfect. Cool. Thanks for listening.